You can have your Bibles handy. We're, we're not going to go there just yet. Um, as far as the message is concerned, I had mentioned uh, that we are going to be talking about the relationship between Christians and holidays today, and indeed we are. This message is going to take a path where we're going to begin with history. And then as after history, we're going to apply doctrine to what we have learned. And in between the history and the doctrine, I'm going to give you a couple of considerations as it relates to uh, various elements of, of thought and, and the process of Christian holidays leading us, Lord willing, to some conclusions. As I mentioned before, my, my point of this message today is not necessarily to convince you one way or the other. You'll see that as we go through. The, the desire today is that I would give you the information and uh, uh, perhaps help you think through the process so that you can have some relative measure of peace or of confidence in the decisions that the Lord would have you to make. Uh, we're doing this because I, I've received a curious number of questions this year as it relates to the Christian relationship to Christmas. And Christmas itself is not just the problem. If you do this study, if you look into history, Christmas and Easter and Lent and all of these things um, have roots which are uh, perhaps we might call suspect as it relates to the historical working out of how these holidays have been um, celebrated, And this is to some degree to be expected in this sense, that there has always been, because of the nature of history in the Roman Catholic Church, a crossover between religious, uh, religious holidays in the Western world and secular holidays in the Western world. And how is it that when we celebrate the same holiday as a bunch of unbelievers, um, it's not going to at some point have some sort of secular focus? To that end, once again, I give you some, some ideas or some warnings as we begin on this. Um, Christmas and Easter, as we talk about Easter, I don't know how long it's been since I've called Easter Easter in the context of the church, right? We, I just don't call it Easter. I call it Resurrection Sunday or, 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 or some call it uh, some variation of the sort because um, Easter is generally understood to be the secular element of it to some degree and resurrection being the the focal point of the spiritual. And that has, has happened in large part in the church, regionally perhaps, culturally. We'll talk more about that too. But with Christmas, it's all the same name, right? Some people call it Advent, which, which uh, you know, I think there's some wisdom in that. But when we talk about Christmas, what are you talking about? Are you talking about Santa or are you talking about Jesus in the manger? And, and, and the two are quite polar opposites, in fact, and, and so as I'm talking about this holiday, do take note that I am calling it Christmas, and I'm going to try to make clear which part of Christmas we're talking about. And as we parse it in our minds and we say, I don't celebrate Christmas, well, w what do you mean by that? Does that mean you've, 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 you've set it all down, you've left it all behind, or is it I don't celebrate a certain aspect of what the world would call Christmas? And we'll talk about this in any number of contexts, even, even to the idea of do we really need to fight to keep Merry Christmas alive in a culture where Merry Christmas means nothing, has nothing to do with Jesus? Or do we just need to keep it alive in the church as it relates to his incarnation? So we'll talk about all of these different things. I, I, I hope that as we walk through it, we're not going to get distracted by terminology and these sorts of things. I'm going to try to keep that clear. But just know that as we talk about Christmas, if you've got in your mind Christmas means Santa Claus, there are going to be times where I'm going to be talking about Christmas and it doesn't mean Santa Claus. 
Okay, I'm talking about the holiday as a whole and the various parts of that holiday being divided one from another, and you'll see that as we go through. So again, the point of this sermon will not necessarily be to convince, but to provide a semi-comprehensive and God-willing balanced perspective, which will then give you the equipment necessary, the tools necessary, the Word of God, and its, um, its teaching necessary for you to operate in freedom of conscience as it relates to the extent to which you're going to take these Christian holidays and move forward with them in your life or in the lives of your family. What we don't want people doing is operating under guilt, that what they're doing might be wrong, that somehow the holiday and the desire to celebrate and to to, to genuinely celebrate certain elements of a holiday might be mired in the questions of, by doing so, is there something wrong between me and the Lord? And it may, may be that there are certain particular elements of tradition as you've grown up, childhood tradition, whatever it might be, that you're going to assess and you're going to have to say, you know what, I just cannot do that in good conscience before the Lord anymore. And that's not always fun. And, and, and there's almost a part of you where you feel like a little part of your childhood dies or something for the Lord. But then there may be other things that you can just, you can do. It's okay. It's not a problem. And you shouldn't have to every year have that guilt in the back of your mind saying, is this or is this not okay? You assess it. You know where to go. You know the scriptures to apply. You know what the history says. And then you make the, the, the decision as best you can. And so the Bible tells us, and we'll get here toward the end of our sermon today, happy is he that condemneth not himself for something that the Lord allows. So let's begin walking through our time together today. History of Christian holidays. The history of Christian holidays. So the history of Christian holidays is, is checkered with claims of paganism, and understandably so, because the history of Christian holidays runs directly through the Roman Catholic Church, and if you've ever studied the history of the Roman Catholic Church, it is, in fact, checkered with paganism, if not outright pagan itself. We mentioned this when we considered the various traditions throughout the world of the mother-child cult and the pagan roots of the singular religion that we call Babylon. That the Roman Catholic Church, oftentimes, throughout its traditions, throughout the elements of the church, reflect far more the paganism of the mother-child cult than they do the actual distinctives of the virgin birth, of Mary, her proper place within the story, and, of course, the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, most of the thinking as it relates to these pagan connections in the minds of those who study it uh, was at least amalgamized by a man named Alexander Hislop, who wrote a book in 1916 that took many of the historical concerns related to paganism and specifically to the Roman Catholic Church, and he combined them into a fairly well-documented and um, a, a pretty well-footnoted uh, um, book called The Two Babylons. It's also called Papal Worship Proved to be the Worship of Nimrod and His Wife. Now, I've read the book, and it has a lot of interesting information. I do not agree with a, a large number of Hislop's conclusions on it. Um, however, we do also need to understand that though his research in 1916 and this book as it came out, which is free online if you want to read it. It's free on PDF online. You can get a copy and read it. Um, if... As we look at his 
kind of combination of all of the, the, the research as it relates to the Roman Catholic Church and various elements of paganism and, and, and thus how that relates specifically to the holidays of Christmas and Easter and Lent and Assumption, and he goes through several others. We need to understand that these concerns have well predated the 1900s in the church. The controversy is not just about Christmas either, mentioned already. Just about every modern Christian observance had its roots in an observance in the Roman Catholic Church. And because it had an observance in the Roman Catholic Church, it almost by default did merge with pagan holidays. Because the Roman Catholic Church was so embedded with human government and so embedded with governing over those who did not believe and so embedded in the traditions and those traditions became embedded not just in the church but in culture that there's almost, it's almost impossible to separate the two. And I encourage you thus to gain some sort of perspective that helps you understand that history is not cut and dry on these things. Where, we're going to come across some chicken and egg problems. Was this first Christian observance that was secularized or was this a secular observance that was Christianized? Sometimes we don't know. We're going to come across some times where, where history is going to say some things, but that history uh, no longer bears, bears any sort of a, a reflection on what's done today. Well, do we throw out what's done today because of something that was called the same thing but isn't the same thing 100 years ago or 500 years ago? Or do we recognize that times and cultures have changed? There are going to be times where you're going to run across something in one culture. Particularly, you think of things such as the Yule Log, which in certain cultures had extreme pagan implications, but in other cultures did not. And you say, well, what are we going to do then? Are we going to look at the culture that was paganized? Or are we going to look at the one where it was not a big deal? Which one are we going to use as our benchmark? And all of that's going to bring us to, uh, to, to this point where I'm going to encourage you to be careful just how much you try to rely upon the history of something to determine what you're going to do today and in larger part to rely upon the fruit of those things in today's culture. The, the essence of what it means today as the framework by which we make these decisions. So in the realm of modern Christian observances, the controversy will touch Christmas, Easter, Lent. I'm going to talk about those three. Of course, I'm going to uh, strongly handicap it toward Christmas as we talk through this material. One final note before we get going. It is important as well to understand that there is no consensus about this history. Holidays are unique things. They are so cultural. Cultures change. Cultures adapt. They transform throughout the years. And as cultures and times have changed, so too have holidays. Their origins are about as cryptic as anything else in the fog of ancient history. So I mentioned, did pagan stuff, was it derived from good Christian stuff that was perverted? Or did Christian stuff, was it derived as an accommodation to pagans that had already perverted something? In some, in some contexts, this is impossible to know. But by learning what we can know, and then by understanding what we don't know, that reality might in itself help us come to some conclusions on the matter. 
So let's get to it. Christmas. The history that concerns most people in relation to Christmas is thus. And, and whether or not all, all of this history, again, is true is highly debatable. In Hislop's book, he talks about the Yule Log. And as he makes connections to the Yule Log, the word Yule has various origins. But the most contentious is that Yule is a derivation of an ancient Chaldean, Babylonian word meaning infant or little child. Thus, in pagan ritual, Yule Day, which many placed to have been on December 25th, was the time when the pagans would celebrate the birth of the son of the Queen of Heaven. Remember when we talked about that as it related to the mother-child cult. Uh, going all the way back to Semiramis and Nimrod and Tammuz, that, that Semiramis had her son Tammuz, who she said was a reincarnation of the father Nimrod. So Tammuz was both the son of God and God himself. And she said that she was uh, thus the virgin mother. And we had this mother-child, virgin-mother cult that was derived, that brought about from it uh, a pagan worship system that was intended to mimic or to copy a true worship system. And many people put the Yule log into that category uh, based upon this Chaldean word, which means infant, and the fact that they would take this log on uh, the 24th and they would burn it, uh, and in doing so, representing the cutting down of Nimrod, and then they would put evergreens all over their house, right? The Christmas tree type idea, the, the wreaths, the evergreens, as a sign that they had confidence that uh, as evergreens do not die, right, do not wither, that there would be a, a restoration of Nimrod, which will lead us into Lent and Easter here in just a little bit. So we have this, and, and again, this is the farthest off claim. This is the, the worst case scenario as it relates to these things. If you start to read about Christian Catholic history, which I'll get into in a moment, they have different explanations for these things. And that's going to help us as we understand that as well. Uh, then people bring in the concept of the winter solstice, which is not on December 25th, right? Uh, it's prior to December 25th, but that the winter solstice um, was a part of this as well. Winter solstice being oftentimes celebrated in pagan rituals, specifically as it related to the sun. And we're going to see more of that in just a moment. In Roman culture, there was an important feast, Saturnalia, from December 17th to December 21st. That would have to do directly with the winter solstice, which was generally on the 21st. On the 27th, there would be a feast of dolls where gifts were given to children. And then on the 25th, and this is important, there was a, a holiday called Dies Natalis Invicti Solis, the birth of the unconquered sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N, like the sun, solar sun. And this would be in honor of the birth of the child in the mother-child cult, the birth of the sun. It was often the case in paganism that the sun is one of the symbols that represented that child. Now, as you think about that, I want you to think about that chicken and egg problem thing. The birth of the unconquered son, the rising of the son, the child, the child who is the son. As we've sung our hymns just last week, we emphasized the son of righteousness arising with healing in his wings, right? The light of the world that came. Simeon holding that baby in his arms, saying that he is the light to lighten the Gentiles. Zechariah proclaiming six months before Jesus' birth that the day spring on high would visit. 
And we see here one of the problems with this chicken and an egg idea. What came first? The perversions of the son God as it relates to the infant or the promises of Messiah who would be the light of the world. How much of what is what, what we see is paganism taking that which is right and true about Messiah and attributing it to some other God? And how much of it is Christians celebrating the one who is the light of life? And should we not be able to celebrate the one who is the light of life because pagans have turned it into something that is incorrect? Do you see the chicken and an egg type idea here? So we have this Dies Natalis Invicti Solus. Sorry, I never learned Latin, so that may not be perfect. And all of this, then as we bridge into Christian history and then Roman Catholic history, might temper this history a little bit. So you've learned this. You've learned this stuff about Invicti Solus. We've learned this stuff about how that was the day of the birth of the Son God. That was the day that was, that was used to celebrate the birth of the Son God, who was often attributed to the Son that was born of a virgin in this mother-child cult, and that he was the reincarnation of his father, and they would elevate the mother to goddess status. So it would be the mother goddess and the son goddess, and they would be co-redemptors, if that sounds familiar, right? Mary being called in the Catholic Church the co-redemptress, which is why we see there significantly more paganism and and cult than we see Christ and and the Word of God. And they are this co-redemptive, this co-divine pair. And all of those errors that that are there in the the Roman system of worship, in the mother-child cult system going all the way back to Babylon, we see it in Egypt, we see it in the Middle East, we see it in, in places all around the world. As it relates to the Roman Catholic Church and as it relates to Christmas, Christmas was founded, as far as the Roman Catholic Church is concerned, 1038 A.D. It was not among the early Christian feasts. It was not listed by Irenaeus or Tertullian in their list of Christian feasts. Their list of Christian feasts are the earliest ones that we have on record, and we don't have record of of Christmas within those feasts. So we know that it is something that was not regularly and officially celebrated by the church early on. In fact, the early church fathers, as we would regularly call them, regularly mocked the idea of celebrating birthdays, of celebrating the birthday of, of, of an individual, of celebrating the birthdays of people. And much less, they mocked the pagan ritual of celebrating the birthdays of their gods. Because gods aren't supposed to be born, right? And so they would regularly mock the idea of celebrating birthdays in any context. The earlier record, however, that we do have of interest in the birth of Christ within the church is fairly early. Around 200 AD, when Clement of Alexandria was starting to wonder when Jesus was born, and he pegged Jesus' birth date to be somewhere in the, in the region of May 20th. There were others at that time who reached a date of about April 20th. Now, we all recognize quite, quite obviously, and even as we see this history, that Jesus was not born in December. And he certainly was not born on December 25th. And, and though uh, in, in certain elements of, of Christianity there might be that implication, we might just implicitly say that because we celebrate Jesus' birthday, that's the day he was born. I don't know of anybody, any pastor, who seriously has ever taught or believed that Jesus was born on December 25th or anywhere around December. 
uh, simple study of history, even of, of the book of Luke, makes it very clear that that was not the case. That has never been a contention of the church, nor was it even a contention of the Catholic Church back in the day. The, the, the church has never taken an official position that says that Jesus was born on December 25th. Holidays don't necessarily have to be directly correlated to or tied into an exact day as much as the remembrance of an event. Of course, that becomes a little more troubling when we realize that December 25th is a, a day of, of pagan note. We'll talk about how that came about within the church as we continue here. So uh, as we consider these ideas, around 200 AD, certain leaders in the church are starting to wonder about when it may have been that Jesus Christ was born. At that time, however, Clement tells us there did seem to be a celebrating of the nativity of Jesus Christ, but not an actually an actual day dedicated just to it. In fact, there was generally a merging of a celebration between the nativity of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus, and that would take place somewhere around January 6th on uh, the religious calendar. As a matter of fact, uh, Armenian Christians today still do not celebrate Christmas proper. Armenian Christians today generally only celebrate one holiday surrounding both the baptism and the birth of Jesus Christ, and that is on January 6th. And so January 6th was a very important day in the church, and we do see this one in the list. We do see this one from early on, that there was this January 6th day whereby people recognized the baptism of Jesus Christ and that that started to be merged as people started to become more interested with the birth of of Jesus Christ. Now, by the mid 300s, there was a call for the church to separate these two feasts, and the Feast of the Nativity, uh, by certain records, was moved to December 25th. And the reason why the church argues that the that the at least as a part of the reason. So, if you if you read the Catholic Church history on this, the Catholic Church doesn't actually know in full why. They, the, the, the date is December 25th. But one of the reasons that they do give explicitly is that March 25th was the day where they celebrated Mary's conception. And nine months later to the day is December 25th. And so it would make sense if you're celebrating the conception of Christ, the impregnation of Mary by the Holy Ghost on Ma March 25th, it would make sense that you would celebrate Christ's birth on December 25th, nine months later. But by those same records, if you read the Catholic records on this, they do acknowledge that there is a pagan element to this as well. We generally regard one of the worst times in church history as far as compromise and the destruction of the church wholesale to be when Emperor Constantine gave the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. In 313 AD, Emperor Constantine made the Christian religion, which had to that time been persecuted and illegal, he made it legal. And not only legal, but he converted to Christianity itself. And since to that point, the emperors had been gods in the nation, effectively by converting to Christianity, he effectively made Christianity the state religion. And this brought about an incredibly unique circumstance, one that we actually can to some degree relate to in the United States because of our Christian heritage. We see a unique circumstance where pagans were Christianized. 
And in that particular case, pagans began flocking to the church en masse because they wanted to be a part of the religious uh, um, focus of their emperor. And naturally, if you get a bunch of pagans that are brought into the church, that is not going to be good for the church. When the dirty's with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. Now it's one thing, pagan comes into the church, here's the gospel, get saved. It's another thing if pagans come wholesale into the church and are making the decisions and are dictating the direction that the church goes because they have no spirit of God within them to help them understand the direction that the Lord would have the church to go. Even before this time, however, even before this merging, even before this paganism began to make its way into the church, there was an unhealthy and heretical Greek and Roman pagan mysticism that related to that soul invicti, that, that day, the day of the sun god. There was this very unhealthy cult of, that, that is called the solar cult or the sun cult, solar cult, just so that you know it's S-U-N cult, not S-O-N cult. And there was this cult that recognized the link between God and this idea of light in the same way that in various times in history, uh, you know, when, when the Bible says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and you have that concept of the logos. The concept of logos actually had at that time in history had a pagan root to it. There was a pagan cult that spoke of God as the Logos. That's the Greek word for word, as the spoken word. Uh, when you talk about Aristotle and Plato, they talk about this idea that what you speak, that, you, that, that, that what you say is in fact something that has an existence of himself. So when we see the world as it relates to, uh, philosophically, they drew the link that says, if what I speak has a, has a power in and of itself and can create reality, then this world must have this world being a reality, perhaps it is the derivation of a voice. And the derivation of that voice, they called the Logos or the Word. But it wasn't Jesus. It was a pagan idea that was rooted in the Logos. And so when John writes, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and then in John 1.14, and the Logos became flesh, and dwelt among us, this was a transformative and strong challenge to the cult that had, had, had arisen around the concept of this, this false god, this false logos. In the same way, there was this very uh, heretical sect that had grown up around this idea of, of the, the Messiah, of the one who would be like the sun, of the sun being born, S-U-N, of the solar uh, of the idea of, of God and the sun and um, him bringing light to the world, the sun, of course, being the origin of so much of, of health and beauty and light and life in this world. And so there was this unhealthy cult and it had already begun merging with Christianity to some degree because Satan, when he introduces error, of course, the best way to introduce error is to get it as close to the truth as possible, Right? And so we see this all the way from the beginning. We see this in the mother-child cult. The mother-child cult bears a great number of resemblances to the virgin birth and to the incarnation of our Lord. Satan did that on purpose, didn't he? To get people off track. That if they can look at their own cultish pagan practice and say, well, it's just like the Bibles, from their limited understanding, 
then they can say, see, Christianity is just like any other. Satan concocted a counterfeit system in this mother-child cult to mimic, without the power and without the clarity of truth, the system that God would put in place through the Messiah. In the same way, Satan derives this Logos cult, Satan derives this solar cult as a means by which to cause people to be distracted, diverted, and brought into a place of error from a place of truth. That's what we see here. So, by the, as early as the 100s, I mentioned Tertullian already, and he had a list of feasts, right? As early as the 100s AD, Tertullian was already rebuking people in the church for merging this solar cult idea with Jesus and saying that Jesus is just another manifestation of the same idea. That's as early as 100 AD. And by the three and four hundreds, after the Edict of Milan, after, after the paganism really started coming into the church, by that time, things were really getting serious as both Augustine and Pope Leo I. Who the, I mean, the popes didn't start out all bad. I mean, even throughout history, there were a few good ones. Pope Leo I and Augustine were both vehemently rebuking those who sought to equate the incarnation of Christ with the message of the solar cult. Unfortunately, none of this was helped when they moved the nativity to December 25th, right? Which was the date when Natalis Invicti, Invicti's soul, was celebrated. The, the birth of the sun god called variously Osiris, Mithras, also, uh, and such. But do take note of this. While the date was the same, what I want you to glean from the church history part is it's not as if the church was just like, hey, yeah, pagan holiday, let's do this. They had reasons outside of paganism why they did what they did. They, they, they didn't just openly seek to merge with paganistic practices, nor were, were those lines even muddied at the beginning. Now, Again, we're we're judging history here, but it seems as though, as we study history, the rebukes were out there, the the clarity was made that this is not the solar cult, Jesus is not the solar cult, Jesus is not that sun god, Jesus is not Mithras, Jesus is not Osiris, and those, those cultic traditions do not reflect what happened in Christ, that they are cheap copies of what happened in Christ. But that being said, it must be acknowledged that the influence of moving, December, moving Christmas, moving the, the understanding of the nativity to December 25th was a grave error and one that caused no end of problems for the church as it would continue as it related to this pagan celebration of the sun god, of the rebirth of, of this god of Nimrod and such. So I'm not trying to shade over that. The fact that it's December 25th, even if it has a Catholic reason and that it's nine months directly after the celebration of Assumption, this caused a real problem and should never have been done, should never have been chosen. And there was debate about that in the church if you go back and you read what we know of that history at the time. So we talk about this history. We talk about it from the complete pagan perspective. Then we talk about it from the Christian perspective and Roman Catholic Church perspective. And, and, and again, when, when does the Roman Catholic Church divert from true Christianity? That's a debate in and of itself. Because at one time, there was a real unity in the church, even though they called themselves a Catholic Church. There was a real unity in the church. Doctrine was sound, 
before things such as the iconoclastic controversy and such. As we continue down the path then, so we have this death of Nimrod, burning of the Yule log, expectation of the reincarnation, birth of the sun, uh, December 25th, the winter solstice and Saturnalia, the 17th through the 21st of December. We have all of these things in place. As we get toward the spring, we see a concept, and I taught on this in Jeremiah a little while back, the weeping for Tammuz. And this brings us to the concepts of Lent and Easter. Now, Easter is a name that is certainly not Christian in origin. We do see it in our King James Bible, but it's used properly in our King James Bible. Uh, there are several places where the Bible uses the term Passover, and then you'll see one instance where it talks about Easter, and you'll find that it's talking about it in, in a broader sense, in not the, the Jewish sense, but in, it's talking about the Roman, the Roman holiday of Easter, not the Jewish holiday of Passover. And so it's not incorrectly translated, as many would contend, in our King James Bibles, but that the word Easter is there by intent to show a distinction between the, the, the fact of Passover and then the fact that there was also this other holiday going on at that time called Easter. Now, as Christians, we regard the, the Passover and resurrection and such, um, but we do have this name Easter. Easter being linked to any number of pagan gods. Uh, Easter probably being a direct... Um, derivation of the, the, the old Babylonian god Ishtar. There's also Astart and uh, Ishtar, Astart, Athena. These were uh, all different names for a goddess of fertility, which is why rabbits and eggs become such a big deal at this time of year or at that time of year. Why is it that fertility is a tradition at Easter? Is it just because it's spring? Well, in part, but it's representative of the fertility goddess and rabbits because they are so fertile um, and then of course eggs um, became associated with the season generally speaking we would understand historically for that reason Easter did take place around the same time as Passover every year and so again there was a natural merging of these things we, we recognize that Passover has tremendous value to the church and yet, as we've seen Easter encroach upon it to one way or another, we perhaps have some red flags that go up, and rightfully so. In Catholicism and Lutheranism, as well as perhaps other liturgical denominations, then you have Lent. And Lent is observed in the 40 days just prior to Easter Sunday, Easter morning. And the idea is that you are spending that time in mourning. And generally speaking, the church has connected Lent to the 40 days of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Now, naturally, in the Bible, we have absolutely zero connection in the Gospels between Jesus' 40 days of being tempted in the wilderness, of, of fasting before his temptation, to be precise. We have no connection between that and his resurrection. But we do see the connection in liturgical denominations between the four, this, this 40-day fast or this 40 days of mourning leading up to this day of resurrection. And in fact, as we see that, one of the reasons why, though we celebrate Resurrection Sunday here and though we celebrate uh, Christmas in the sense of Advent here, we do not observe Lent at Legacy Baptist Church is because generally speaking, historically, it's hard to see Lent in the light of the 40 days of fasting of Jesus in the wilderness, as much as to see it as the 40 days of weeping for Tammuz that is warned against in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. And let me tell you why. Generally speaking, in the spring, 
there would be a 40-day weeping for Tammuz, whereby, uh, having recognized that he was cut down his death uh, around that Christmas time, uh, and then the evergreens showing hope that there will be life again, uh, everything died, everything is dead, winter is a representation of everything being dead, and then at some point, right, we begin to see spring come around, and there's budding, and there's new life. And so traditionally, historically, within the pagan realm, they would weep for 40 days for their dead God. And then at the end of that 40 days, they would celebrate his resurrection, and that celebration would start spring. And with this coming of spring, there would be the new life and the budding and all of this. Their God had resurrected, and that is representative of the fact that there is this new life, and we see it all around us. The God is, uh, is alive again, therefore he's bringing with him fertility. He's bringing with him um, new life, flowers and such. And so as we see the connection between 40 days of weeping right before the resurrection of a God, that tradition is not actually found in the Bible, 40 days of weeping leading up to the resurrection, but it is found in paganism. And so we see a distinction here whereby why is it that we celebrate resurrection and we celebrate Christmas, but we have avoided Lent? Well, because I, the only connection I see in Lent historically is to paganism as it relates to the timing of events. Now, does that mean that everybody who observes Lent is doing an evil thing? Well, that's where we'll talk about fruit. No. If they have in their minds a desire to do right, paganism isn't entering into their mind. That's, that, that's, that's a different question. But the fact that it only bears an association to a pagan practice should cause us to have a red flag, something that should cause us to really think about the timing of these events and why it actually is that this, that, that this tradition was instituted. Easter, however, is a little bit different. Of any holiday on the Christian calendar, the Passover is the one which is most natural for Christians to observe. Christians have uh, not characteristically in our time and in the past uh, um, several hundred years at least observed the Jewish holidays, the Jewish feasts, but the merging of the Passover feast with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus came quite naturally because the, at least those five primary Old Testament Jewish feasts all teach and speak of Jesus himself. That being said, as I mentioned, the name Easter, the association with rabbits, with eggs, these are things that we would generally recognize to be quite pagan in origin. And, that, and the, the proof of that is pretty strong historically. Now to all of this end, History tells us almost every Christian holiday has some merging at least with paganism. And to that end, what we find is that within the United States, just about every Christian holiday was outlawed from very early on. In the 1600s and 1700s, the Puritans, within every Puritan uh, uh, colony, explicitly outlawed almost every Roman Catholic ob ob observance. And that includes, of course, 
Christmas. Now, Christmas was not one of the more important holidays on the Roman Catholic calendar until such time as it became under attack by the Puritans. But what we find as we study history, if you want to read up on men like Oliver Cromwell, who declared Christmas to be illegal, and uh, various other Puritan leaders who declared Christmas among the other holidays to be illegal, what we see is that throughout history, the majority of Puritans, Quakers, Congregationalists, and Anabaptists saw the holiday as an abomination. Whereas the liturgical denominations, Catholics, Lutherans, Dutch Reformed, celebrated it quite, uh, quite openly. And beyond the Puritan zeal for just uh, the secular element of the holiday, which was alive and well, we'll talk more about that, there was also the Puritan zeal to reject anything that associated with popery. With, with, Rome, with the Roman Catholic traditions. And so they rejected uh, certain elements of Christmas on the basis of their zeal against secularism and then other elements on the basis of their zeal against the Pope and against the Roman Catholic Church. So as we look at the, the history of particularly Christmas, it was very popular in England around the time that people were coming to the New World, the Puritans were making their way over here, but it was not a holiday that bears the characteristics of what we see today. Christmas was a, a, a very pagan holiday. It gave lip service to Jesus being born at that time of year, but it was, it was very popular in England and a very pagan holiday. It was a time off of work, so people said that that within the time off of work for Christmas, more crimes were committed generally than the rest of the year put together because people were idle. And on top of that, Christmas was generally a time of debauchery. It was a time of drunkenness. It was a time of sexual promiscuity. It was a time of evil. And so when we see that that is the history of Christmas as it related to England at that time, it is of little wonder then, with the heavy drinking and the sexual liberties and all of the things that came with it, that Christmas was seen as something that was highly evil and the Puritans outright rejected it within their culture. And this would be sustained in some places for somewhere 40, 50 years, in other places up to 100, 150 years, where Christmas, Easter, Lent, all of those things were strictly outlawed among the Puritanic culture colonies within, um, within the New World. And it was actually by this act that the Puritans renouncing it that caused the Roman Catholic Church, as it was attempting to reform, uh, the Reformation did cause the Roman Catholic Church to think about things and to reform some things. It caused them to begin thinking about the manner and the method in which they did some things. They also clung to Christmas, especially when all of these holidays were being abandoned, specifically because it elevated some of the things that the Puritans had rejected, namely emphasis on Mary, the virgin birth. The, the, the conception and such. And so it became significantly more popular in Roman Catholic circles at that time. But though the Puritans, of course, outlawed it, it was still a very popular holiday in, in England, in Germany, and so it did begin to make its way to the New World. By the late 1700s and into the early 1800s, Christmas began to become mainstream. But, and, and I want you to, to, to take note of this. But something happened to the holiday Something happened to the holiday in the United States in particular, and then that made its way back over to Europe through the influence of the United States. Something happened to the holiday through the Puritan process. The holiday was actually purified to some degree. When Christmas came back in the New World, when Christmas came back in the United States, it did not come back with the same 
focus as it had left, as it had been outlawed. The Puritan hostility toward the character of the day actually changed the day and with renewed interest in Christ brought on by the Puritan focus, Christmas was almost completely purged of its debauchery and its evil and was repurposed to be a day significantly more in line with what we have characteristically understood the day to be, namely a time of generosity, a time of goodwill, a time where we focus on the desire for peace, family, giving, these sorts of things. And so what, leave, what that leaves us with is a holiday that for the past 200 years or so has been entirely different in the Western world than what it ever was before. And this is interesting to me. It looks entirely different than anything that, that it would have looked like in the pagan rituals of the Germanic or the English timing. And it looks actually quite different than what the Roman Catholic Church had done prior as well, as they had to severely change and repurpose the holiday at the time of the Reformation. And this is important, because while the name Christmas bears the same name as the holiday that the Catholics had, had instituted, and so it became the Christ Mass, right? It, it, it bore this name of Christ, and it has done so throughout all of the places where the Roman Catholic Church's fingers had reached, even as, as the holiday got more and more debauched and more and more pagan as people got farther and farther away from its roots. It bears the same name as these pagan practices. It bears the same name as that Catholic observance. It even bears some of the same symbols, but it doesn't really bear out the meaning, the effect, the purpose, the fruit of any of those things because of this purging that took place through the puritanical outlawing of it in the 16 and 1700s. So that's the history. We see the history of it from a pagan perspective. We see a history of it from the Roman Catholic perspective. And then we see this unique time in history where it was outlawed and then seemingly to some degree purified through the influence of the Puritans, the Anabaptists, the Quakers, the Congregationalists, and such. Now, after, now that we have all of these ideas in place, and obviously there's more history that could be said, but now that we have all of these ideas in place, I want to go through a couple of considerations as it relates to holidays and such before we begin to apply doctrine. The first thing about holidays in general, two thoughts I want to give you. First, as it relates to the Christian church, there's absolutely no command in Scripture to observe any holidays as it relates to the Christian church or any day of any sort. Historically, we know that Christians gathered on the first day of the week. Paul had mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, that when they gathered on the first day of the week, they were to give, and specifically to give to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. That's what he was asking of them. So we know they met on the first day of the week. We know they met significantly more often than that. The first day of the week has traditionally become the day that we meet because it was the day of our Lord's resurrection. It was the day that we see in the Bible where they met. And so tradition has dictated that Sunday becomes the day. But it doesn't matter. We could meet on Thursday. Just no one would be here because everyone would be at work, right? We could meet on a Thursday, though, and it wouldn't be a problem. Sunday is not a day that is commanded to us to meet, nor is Saturday a day that is commanded to, for us to meet, uh, as you might see in, say, the Seventh-day Adventist denomination and such. Uh, those things are done, and, and, and I'll prove that to you scripturally in a little bit. Likewise, there is no New Testament 
command to observe holidays or feasts. Paul acknowledged in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 27, that Christians would go to secular feasts and might be a part of secular holidays. He spoke in 1 Corinthians 10 about a Christian who might be disposed to go to a feast. And if he's disposed to go to a feast, how he ought to deport himself as it relates to the possibility and the probability that he will have meat set before him that is offered to idols. And so we see these instructions and that and those instructions are within the context of Paul saying, you might go to a secular feast. So Christians were not, were, 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 there was an anticipation, excuse me, that Christians might end up going to some secular revelry. But there is no command in the Bible in regard to Christian or biblical feast days, holidays, or even a, a day of observance. The only thing that we have as far as memorial is concerned is the Lord's table. And then as a symbolic representation after salvation, baptism, which is why we recognize those to be the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table. Now we know that Jewish Christians celebrated Jewish holidays. As we regard what happened in history, Jewish Christians get saved and they are still observing the Jewish traditions. They are still not eating meat uh, um, uh, that's not clean. They are still observing the, the Passover. They are still observing, they're still going to the temple. They're still doing all the things they did before only in the name of Jesus Christ and, and to the purpose that Jesus Christ has ordained them. But what about the Gentiles? Imagine what it must have been like for a Gentile. You grow up having these celebrations. You grow up having these feasts. You might even think about the Corinthian church where Paul is talking about these people that are, that, that are going to feasts and, and wondering, should I eat this meat that has been offered or that has been, has been dedicated to idols? So these people get saved. And as they get saved, they realize that, that, that their fond memories are connected to holidays, but what happens during those holidays is not healthy. Now, considering that there would be no command from the apostles in relation to keeping or not keeping holidays, the question becomes, which would be more natural? Do they sever themselves entirely from everything that relates to the Gentile world, and do they, do they default to the Judaistic teaching, even though the majority of Jews have repudiated Christ as well? Or would they perhaps be more inclined to take the days that their culture has chosen to celebrate something and to repurpose them to celebrate something else. In other words, what we see in our culture is a circumstance where we see Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving becoming deeply paganized. Well, do we come out entirely from the holiday and start new ones? Or do we just tell our children, yes, that's what the world does, but we choose to observe something different? And would it be all that surprising that, particularly among the Gentile churches, they would simply say, yes, these are holidays, yes, these are fun things, but we are celebrating something different. We are focusing on something different. And again, I'm, I'm attempting to give you some perspective here, urging you caution as you would seek to judge the church for the holidays they chose, and even the dates with which they chose them. That maybe that while those decisions were not best and and uh, we might be living out some of the unfortunate fruit of those today, and maybe, maybe we need to make some decisions today to change some things. 
we might be able to understand why things perhaps happened the way they did, particularly as it relates to Gentile believers. Now, the second concept I want to touch on as it relates to holidays in general. The memorials that God has given us to observe, I mentioned the Lord's Supper. The church observes this in culture anywhere from once per week uh, to once per month, like we do, some just a couple of times per year. While we see that memorials themselves are not littered throughout Christian culture, what we do also understand as we look specifically into the Old Testament is that memorials were pretty important to the Lord. All throughout the Old Testament, God encouraged His people to set up physical memorials, physical markers of spiritually important things to help them remember because of all things we humans are really prone to forget, aren't we? We're prone to forget the goodness of the Lord. We're prone to forget things that have happened to us in the past. We're prone to forget what God has done and the greatness of God in, in any individual instance. And memorials help keep us tied to that. That when I see that thing that I erected because of God's faithfulness, I can, I can point to my children and I can say, you see that, children? That is there because of the time when God did that. And that's valid. So some of our girls, they wear a ring on their finger that's often called a promise ring, right? And the idea of that promise ring is that as they are going through life and they're making decisions, they look at that ring and they say, I've made a promise. Husbands and wives wear a ring on their finger and for the exact same reason. It's a memorial. It's a token of a vow that was made of a promise. It is, it is there to be a reminder to me and to be an announcement to others of what I am and of a decision that I have made. God likes memorials. God, throughout the Old Testament, caused people to put up memorials regularly. And it's healthy. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing in culture to have memorials. Even when we don't forget things, we're prone to misinterpret them. Steve and I were talking this morning about the Civil War. And you look at what's happening now in the South, that all of these uh, poor misguided students are tearing down Civil War memorials because they don't like the thinking or the actions or the philosophy of the person that's memorialized there. Well, does that take away from the impact that he had on society or history or culture? No, we just don't like him. And they're tearing down those things that actually root our country in remembrance. It's important that we remember what happened at the Civil War. Because you know what? When society gets divided, we need to see those memorials to remember. We don't want it to get to that point again. That we don't want brother to be fighting against brother. That we don't want hundreds of thousands of lives to be strewn across battlefields. We don't want that again. Memorials help us remember that. Memorials help us remember victories. They help us remember defeats. Memorials keep our minds rooted in that which has happened in the past. And memorials are important. I believe they're important in the Old Testament. And I think that they're important today. I'm not saying they're biblical. It's a biblical mandate. I'm just saying that from a practical standpoint, as we have other considerations here, remember that memorials are important. The old adage goes, those who don't remember history are destined to repeat it. Holidays root us in history, in memorial, in things that might have value to us. 
but they must never be at the expense of truth, right? And that's what we want to figure out today. Is the observance of the historical Christian holidays a compromise? A mark of compromise? Is it something we need to reject? And if it is, what are we going to do instead? How are we going to repurpose a memorial in order that we can remember the things that need to be remembered? And maybe that's not the birth of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's not high up on our list. Significantly more his death, his burial, his resurrection. Significantly more his teachings. Significantly more perhaps other elements that we would want to remember. But that's what we're here to to think through together. Now the next thing I'd like to keep in mind before we apply the scriptures. I mentioned already the chicken and an egg problem. Which came first? As we regard various aspects of of Christmas and of Lent and of Easter, it seems clear from a basic point of view that paganism came first, right? But remember, Satan is a deceitful foe. And he knows the same things that we have observed through history, that the best lies are those that come closest to the truth. Those are the most powerful lies because they catch the well-meaning but undiscerning. Now, as we go back to that concept of the mother-child cult, I mentioned that, of course, the mother-child cult, we can see back as far as Babylon from history and tradition. But simultaneously, as we think on that idea, we assume, we assume that the reason why the mother-child cult came into being is because they knew of the promise of the virgin birth. We assume that, right? All the way back to Genesis 15, where the Bible says that the woman would, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that the serpent would bruise the heel of that seed. We can see the gospel. We don't know what else they knew. We can recognize in the constellations, which are almost universally understood to be the same thing. We can see in the constellations the story of the gospel. We can see in it the promise of a virgin birth. We can see in the constellations that story. If you've never, if you've never looked into that, it's quite fascinating. To where even written in the stars is, are these promises of God. And yet simultaneously, if we look at the written record that we have, we do not learn of a virgin birth until Isaiah, right? Which is a long time after Nimrod and Semiramis and Tammuz. As a matter of fact, at the same time that Isaiah is talking about the virgin birth, Ezekiel, well, it's a little bit later, it would be a little bit later that Ezekiel is having his ministry and he's seeing the vision of women on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem weeping for Tammuz. So that has been in, 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 and we can go back to, of course, Egyptian history and see it with Horus and Osiris and Isis. And so as we look at this, if we are just coming from a historical perspective, We are tempted then to believe in this chicken and an egg scenario if I am just reading what history has to tell me, even the order of the Bible, then I have to believe that Jesus and this virgin birth came after pagan, that that it was an idea derived from paganism. If I'm just following history, because paganism had the idea recorded well before the Bible does. And this is where my faith comes in and I recognize how deceitful of a foe Satan is. And that Satan, knowing the gospel of God from early on, knowing what was taught and what was preached, Satan's not omniscient. He can't know what God, all of what God is going to do, right? 
He's not omnipotent. He's not everywhere. He can't know, know everything and be everywhere. But Satan, having heard what God had taught to others, then begins to create a counterfeit. And as I, as I, rem- uh, I, I encourage you as it relates to this, which came first? The pagan beliefs or the Christian beliefs? We know that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We know that he was promised to be the son of righteousness that would come with healing in his wings, though that's in Malachi, right? We know that he is, he is, is to be the day spring that is on high. We know that he's to be the light to lighten the Gentiles, uh, according to Isaiah. We know that these things are so of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of that same language was used by the solar cult. That same language was used by the Logos cult. That same language was used by the mother-child cult to pervert the truths of God. And my only caution here is this. I don't think Satan would like anything more than to see Christians abandon their loyalty or their celebration of truths because of pagan misrepresentation or because of pagan confusion of those truths. Now, when the pagan confusion and misrepresentation gets into the church, there's a problem. But in the same way that the word Christian means almost nothing in society today, if somebody says, I'm a Christian, you go, okay, because it doesn't mean anything. So in order to tell a person what I am, I have to say I'm a Holy Spirit and dwell born again, Bible-believing Christian. And that becomes a lot of modifiers in order to get somebody to understand a little bit of what I mean. And yet we still hold to that name Christian because it was given to them first at Antioch, and it is a badge. I am a Christian in the purest sense of the word. In the same way, may I encourage you to be hesitant about yielding what does reflect truth because of your fear that a pagan counterfeit is going to muddy those waters. If we did not call Jesus the son of righteousness, if we refused to call him the word of God because some pagan cult took the the concept of the word of God before Jesus was born. If you've never read the decree of Caesar Augustus before the one that all the world should be taxed, the one where he calls himself the divine son of God in the light of life, which was written a couple decades before Jesus was born, you find that Satan has always been active trying to confuse people and using the vernacular that God would use to relate us to Christ. Satan has been busy using it to draw people away at the same time. So be careful that we don't get so zealous in our desire to disassociate from paganism that All Satan has to do is cause paganism to sound like Christianity and we'll throw away the good stuff in our zeal to not be associated with the bad. Don't throw away the fact that Jesus Christ is the light of life because of the solar cult. Don't throw away the fact that Jesus is the word of God because of the Logos cult. Don't throw away the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin because of the mother-child cult. Just don't allow yourself to be brought into the pagan part. Don't start saying that Mary is divine. Don't start saying that she is a co-redemptress. That's the pagan part. That's the part we reject and we say, no, as a matter of fact, that is a pagan satanic copy of what actually happened through Christ. And that's the idea that I want to warn you with as it relates to this idea of which came first. Okay, one more consideration. Things change. God does not. 
Remember that things change, but God does not. Anytime we evaluate anything, it's important to do so on the firm foundation of God's word and God's character and God's intent. Cultures and societies, they change all the time. Words change their meaning. So that a word that I could say without a problem 20 years ago, today I'm, I, 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 can't, I can't say openly. A person can get fired from their job for saying something that 20 years ago was just bantered around without thought, right? Things change. Societies change. It was not that long ago that to have a piano in church was considered heresy and that any church that had a piano in it was heretical. Nowadays, we're fighting to keep this thing in our church because it's gone over to the bass, guitar, and drums. Things change. Times change. Cultures change. Expectations change. The battles of previous generations, battles upon which Christians held the line and needed to hold the line, are battles which simply don't matter anymore. And not because we have compromised. Just because we're no longer fighting a battle doesn't mean we lost that battle, nor does it necessarily mean we've compromised. Sometimes it means that time, circumstance, or technology has made that battle obsolete. The piano being a symbol of something that was negative because it was found in bars and saloons, which is why churches did not want them in their doors, because it was the instrument of bars and saloons. It's not that anymore, is it? The association isn't there anymore, is it? The testimony problem doesn't exist anymore, does it? Did you know that many of the hymns of the faith that we hold dearest are hymns that never would have been sung in the church of their day because the, the, the tunes that we sing were actually tunes that were pulled from culture. They were, they were tunes that were pulled from culture so that people could know the music, so that they could sing these hymns to modern tunes. And now their beloved hymns of the faith, separationist churches back in the day would not have anything to do with those tunes. Things change. Things do. They have to. Because we're people. If you've ever met a pastor leading a conservative church who, who seems to be fighting the battles of a previous generation, specifically the pastors that went through the 60s, I found, that went through the sexual revolution and fought those battles and were on the front lines of those battles, some of those pastors have a hard time letting those battles go. And some of the elements that reflected themselves in that battle, some of the elements that were negative at that time, that, that, that those associations are done and gone now, but they can't. It's like they're still fighting the battle. And what we want to be careful about, when we assess elements of culture, when we try the spirits, whether they be of God, that we assess these elements of culture and society, right and wrong, based not upon the battles of other days, but based upon the battles of our own. Some battles never change. The battle over the deity of Christ will never change. That doesn't change. The battle over the virgin birth of Jesus Christ will never change. Those are battles that I can give to you and that we can give to our children and tell our children, this is a battle, you hold the line. But there are other battles that will change. Some battles are rooted in time and in culture and in context. And we navigate those battles through the word of God. We remain loyal not to the standards by, that we erect to fight that battle, but to the principles that undergird the battle. If I was a, a veteran of World War II, that perhaps you've known some veterans of World War II that have never really gotten over their antipathy against the Germans or against the Japanese. 
And we're not fighting the battle anymore. But they still have a problem with the Germans and the Japanese. Now, in World War II, we were fighting a battle. And we were fighting against the Germans and we were fighting against the Japanese. But World War II, especially on the, on, on the, the European front, was an ideological battle, was it not? It was an ideological battle against Nazism, which was rooted in fascism, evolutionary thinking, uh, the concepts of Nietzsche, the Superman, the, the survival of the fittest. And the Western world was contending against this ideology. Now, if that World War II vet gets home and he is teaching his children something that will help that next generation not fall into the same pit, does he teach them hate the Germans or does he teach them hate the Nazi ideology? He teaches them hate the Nazi ideology, not the Germans. <laughs> because the Germans of today, well, I mean, it's getting bad in Germany again, but the Germans of today, if you carry my, 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 my example through, are not the Nazis. Right? That, that was the battle of that day. The ideology needs to be fought everywhere it's found. So there was a contextual battle of the day. We're fighting the Nazis. We're fighting the Japanese. And then there's an ideological battle that spans it. As Christians, don't teach your children to fight the battles of the day, of your day. Teach your children to fight the ideological battles that undergird the battles of our day. So do I teach my children uh, specifically to fight against the secularization of Christmas and of Easter and of, of these things? Well, or do I teach my children what they mean, the principles of separation, the principles of purity, so that if Christmas and Easter are the thing in their day, they fight it. If it's not the thing, maybe there's a whole other battle. And this is what Satan, you know what happens in the church all the time? We fight a battle and we get caught on the, the battle instead of on the, uh, on the reasons for the battle. And then in the next generation, our children keep fighting our battle, but that's not the battleground anymore. And so we fall behind. And Satan exploits that weakness. When, 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 when the Christians haven't actually, they weren't loyal to the principles, they were loyal to the, to the context, and so they're still fighting a context that is no longer relevant, and they've missed the principle, and then Satan is exploiting that principle in another area of society because we're fighting the wrong battle. To that end, Remember, things change, but God does not. Which means what we, want to, what we want to be loyal to. If there is a reason, if you are going to, to stop celebrating Christmas in any way, if you are going to stop celebrating Easter in any way, let it be not on the grounds of fighting a particular foe, but on ideological grounds. On the basis of this does not line up with the Word of God and what we are loyal to is the Word of God. So that in the next generation, when your children grow up and they're assessing things for themselves, they say, well, we didn't do that. But not just because we don't do that, but because we are loyal to this deeper principle. And then when their own battles come up, they have the principle to, to lean on there. Things change. God does not. Okay, now I've given you all this. Let's talk doctrine. The first argument doctrinally speaking, is the argument of separation. Knowing what we know about the history of Christmas and of Lent and of Easter, the natural argument that presents itself is the argument of separation from the world. We label ourselves a fundamentalist rather than evangelicals 
the people often will ask me, Pastor, what's the difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical? Generally speaking, as defined by the man who coined the term neo-evangelical, he said evangelicals, neo-evangelicals in particular, reject separation. And so fundamentalists and evangelicals have, have grown along these lines where we have many of the same doctrines, except that evangelicals, by and large, and there's now conservative and less conservative evangelicals, and conservative evangelicals tend to drift more towards what we would historically call the fundamentalist camp, and then the neo-evangelical camp is the other one. And the line between those two is what we believe about the doctrine of separation, We are fundamentalists. We believe in the doctrine of separation. The fundamentalist conviction has been that you win the world by living in distinction from the world. And this distinction will form the basis by which the world sees the difference, sees the light, and they are drawn to the light by the Spirit of God because they want that difference. Now, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the scriptures are filled with admonitions to separate from the world. Any number of Old Testament Levitical laws existed specifically to keep the nation from living and worshiping like the pagans around them, right? That's why they could not mark their skin. When people talk about tattoos today, the Old Testament warnings against marking their skin was because if they tattooed their skin, they would look like the pagan the, the, the pagan priests. If they shaved their head, they would look like the pagan priests because the pagan priests shaved their heads and marked their skin. And God said, I don't want you to have any outward association, anything that would outwardly associate you with pagan worship, with, 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 with pagan ideologies. This is why the Old Testament outlaws body piercings as well for the nation of Israel. The the Old Testament outlawed graven images and high places and groves, all of these things. Why why does it matter whether or not you worship God in a clump of trees or not? Well, because the pagans worship God and their gods in a clump of trees. Why, why, Why did it matter about the high places? Well, particularly because of the priest's robes and the priests would be the ones to climb up on the high places. And that's what the pagans did. They erected the high places. So the nation of Israel was called to separate as is the church. And we read this. Now we'll get to the, the scriptural part. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. So the first thing that we need to consider as we are assessing the Christian holidays... Going through the process of assessing these holidays, as with everything, the first thing that we, we do is we, we look at doctrine and we seek to apply doctrine to it. What about the doctrine of separation? Is there a separation issue at play here? Paul calls for the believers not to yoke themselves with that which is characterized by darkness, by unbelief, by unrighteousness, that, uh, that we as individuals are the temple of the living God and that the church collectively is the body of Christ. We are not to mix 
the purity of the doctrines of Christ with the principles of the world around us. We see this admonition in James chapter 1, verse 27, where James says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Right? Pure religion is defined as, being, as, as helping those that are innocent, helping those that are weak, helping those that are in need, and keeping yourself undefiled, unspotted from the world around you. When the dirty's with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. When the darkness of this world calls for compromises with the light of Christ, the only compromises the darkness are ever willing to accept are the compromises of the light getting darker. You've seen this, right? You've seen this in politics. You've seen this in, in culture. The, 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 there's a certain side of the spectrum that is always calling for compromise. And wouldn't you know it, the compromise is always shut up and do what we tell you. Right? That's the compromise every single time. It's let the, dark get, the, the light gets darker. It's never the dark gets lighter. Paul wrote in his first epistle to the Corinthians. This is the, the passage I told you about earlier about eating meat to idols at the feast. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 21 to 23, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. When we play around with these attempts to merge the world's ways and thinking and sound, uh, with sound doctrine, we are precipitating the collapse of sound doctrine. We're called to hold fast sound doctrine in purity. We're called in any number of passages to separate from those believers which are walking contrary to sound doctrine, which are seeking to bring errors or compromise into the church. Now, with this general doctrinal principle put in place, the question we ask then is, what about Christmas? What about Lent? What about Easter? How do those principles apply to us today? Do these principles mean that we cannot celebrate Christmas? Do they mean that, that we cannot celebrate Easter? Does it mean that we cannot celebrate Lent? Well, it depends on what you mean, right? Especially as it relates to Christmas. As we assess the nature of Christmas as it's practiced today, we recognize that Christmas can be generally divided into three different, three different elements. There's biblical elements, there's decorative elements, and then there's secular elements. And we might put the decorative elements into the secular elements, except the decorative can go either way. Now, as we look at each of these elements, we must acknowledge that they are not the same things. Perhaps that's the problem with calling it Christmas when we talk about Santa in the same breath as we call Christmas talking about Jesus. Maybe Christians do need to come up with a new name, as we have kind of done for Easter in calling it Resurrection Sunday. You won't see Easter on our calendar. We'll call it Resurrection Sunday. And maybe we need to do that. Maybe we need to, to, to follow various aspects of the church into an Advent uh, celebration rather than in a Christmas celebration to try to disassociate just that one step from the world, but you know, Advent in various places have their own problems, which is of course, the way, of the way things always go. So as we evaluate each of these elements, right, we're looking for, do we need to separate? We know that we need to separate from the world. The question is, does Christmas, Easter, Lent, do these things bear the fruit of separation? And that is our second uh, uh, doctrinal point here, the argument of fruit. And in many ways, this is going to be the big one that I want you to think about with me today. The argument of fruit. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. 
Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. So Jesus calls for us to identify false teachers by their fruits. And the reason why is because he calls false teachers wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, when, when, if you've ever seen a cartoon, maybe an old roadrunner or something where, where Wildy Coyote tries to dress himself like a, like a sheep or tries to dress himself like something. Of course, in the cartoon, you always see you, you can always see him, right? You always know exactly what he is because in a cartoon you have to know that that's him or it loses its comedic effect. But the fact of the matter is Jesus calling them wolves in sheep's clothing means that there will be no outwardly discernible marks. They look like sheep. They look like sheep. So how do you know the difference between a sheep and a wolf when the wolves are dressed like sheep? By their fruits. By what comes from their ministry, by what comes from their family, by what comes out of their lives, by the manner in which they live, by the way in which they think, by the, the direction that their ministry or their lives or their decisions have taken them. Good trees don't bring forth corrupt fruit. And so as we look at various elements of Christmas, various elements of Easter, various elements of Lent, we need to determine what parts bear, the fr bear righteous fruit, if any, what parts bear dangerous fruit, if any, and then we need to make decisions or determinations based upon that. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-3 through 3 says this, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So John warns that the spirit of Antichrist is already functioning in the world. Jesus warns that, uh, John warns, that, that, this is, that you're going to see the spirit of Antichrist operating in every age. And then he says, try the spirits. And this is how you try the spirits. Now, the standard uh, by which John tries the spirits, we thus submit to Christmas. And as we think about Christmas, there is certainly an aspect of Christmas that we must admit bears positive fruit. The very fact that all around this nation at this time of year, you see Jesus in a manger. We went up to the Bentleyville Lights up in Duluth this last week. And yep, there were Santa Claus and there were all of these different lights. But there was a, a large light set of Jesus and Mary and Joseph. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. All around this country is some testament to the fact that, that, that Jesus came in the flesh. That's, that's a good thing. It's a unique time of year in which a pagan society hears the name of Jesus on the radio. People in pagan society might actually say things like, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, they don't believe it. They don't understand it. But it's getting out. Banners, nativities, speaking, speaking of Jesus openly. All of this connected to the reality that Jesus has come in the flesh. Can we truly call that the cup of the devil in the purest sense? I don't, I don't think we can. 
Does it bear the marks of, of, of the fruit of sin and of evil and of wrong? I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't see that as far as that element of Christmas. The part that we bring into the church, right? The part that the church focuses on. Naturally, we all know this part of the season is going away, not, not just naturally, it's going away forcibly, right? Uh, Chicago, uh, was it? They have their city building or whatever, and they have their nativity set, and then next to it is a satanic memorial now. It's a woman with an apple in her hand and a snake around it, specifically speaking of Eve, and then it said underneath, knowledge is power, or something to that effect. So there's this testament to Satan right next to the testament of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what happens in a free society. That's what happens as society gets farther and farther and farther and farther away from God. But do you know what? By the very fact that the darkness of this world felt compelled to put up that, that, that idol, that, that image in, that cor- in the, the, the building, kind of tells me that that manger set has, ha- has something that the darkness doesn't like still that there's something about that manger that the darkness still recoils at so that they'll want to put up a satanic sculpture right next to it and and that in and of itself shows me something about its fruit right now that's the part of the holiday that you've seen at Legacy Baptist Church and that's because as I've gone through this process of assessment and as this church has gone through this process of assessment that's the part that we have assessed to be proper to bear positive fruit. What about decorations? Let's take, let's take decorations. That one gets a little bit more interesting, right? Christmas trees, lights, etc. As we assess these things, we say, what does it bear? Does it bear negative fruit? Does it bear virtuous fruit? Well, the, the very fact of decorations themselves don't really have any fruit in and of themselves unless I were to take these flowers and you know, shape them into the horns of a devil or something. Uh, then we've obviously got a problem. But as it relates to simply the flowers themselves, the evergreens themselves, the, the garlands themselves, the tree itself, a tree is a tree. It's created by God, right? And so we have this idea. Now, the question becomes, to what degree have they been uh, associated with pagan practices, and, and then to what degree should that matter to us? Now, it should not surprise us that various elements of, of, of trees and of such are associated in, in, with pagan practices because many pagans worship trees. Uh, because of that, there is going to be a natural association between trees between flowers and between pagan celebrations flowers are beautiful Uh, they're used in celebrations all the time this is almost natural and human so the question is does it bear negative fruit that causes me concern or that would cause my testimony to be marred or, or would cause a brother to stumble there's an argument that could be made that the focus of the church in the celebration should be fundamentally different, but that's, that's always the case. No matter what it is in society, the focus of the church should look fundamentally different because it should be Christ-focused, whether that's decorations, whether that's the holiday itself, whatever the case may be. Uh, my family has tried to solve this in a unique way. We put up a Christmas tree, and on that Christmas tree, we only allow ornaments that relate to the nativity, to, that, that relate to the manger that relate to angels and stars and, and Jesus and such. And then we take all of our secular ornaments, tractors and all those sorts of things, and we hang them up somewhere else. Somewhere that has, has nothing to do with 
with, with our actual celebration on, the, on, on Christmas because that's not what Christmas is about. Maybe some people say, you know, the, the, the secular emphasis means we shouldn't have them. Uh, what does it bear, what fruit does it bear out in your life, in your focus, in your children, in the holiday? That's what we're looking for. Christians have done this in a number of ways, in any number of times within culture, where they have sought to take and make sure that the fruit of what they are doing is proper. And let me just say this in regard to the Christmas tree itself, because this one is very con- uh, controversial. This is the only particular element of decoration, generally speaking, that people use a Bible verse to argue against. And that Bible verse is Jeremiah chapter 10. We talked about it a little while ago in Jeremiah. The Bible says this, Hear the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. They are up. Uh, they are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. So there are many who would tell you that this is speaking of the Christmas tree, cutting down a tree, mounting it, and decorating it. But this is absolutely not what the text is saying here. If you read the context, you can even see it right at the end in verse 5 here. God, um, God tells them, don't be afraid of these things because they can't do you good or evil. Well, what does a person cut down, erect, and cover with silver and gold that someone might think could do them evil. It's not a Christmas tree. It's a false god. The idea here in Jeremiah 10, the warning is don't go like the heathen, cut down a tree, carve it into the image of a god, plate it in gold, call it your god, and then think that it can bless you or curse you. This has nothing to do with Christmas trees. This has absolutely nothing to do with celebrating a Christmas tree. Okay, so so if if you read that, it really takes it takes about ten minutes of context reading, and if you want one commentary, and you will find that this has nothing to do with Christmas trees, nor has it ever. In the literal sense, quite the contrary, when we think about evergreens in the Scripture, when the Bible actually talks about evergreens, types of evergreens, cedars, firs, there is a tree, the shittim tree by which they got shittim wood. These were all different types of evergreens. And when we think about how God used them, the pine, he talks about the pine. In the scriptures, God used them almost unequivocally to talk about blessing. He would liken Israel to the cedars of Lebanon in their strength and in the fact that there is no, that, 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 that there's a persistent strength in them, right? See, most trees wither So when God sought to use a tree to liken Israel or even liken his faithfulness to something, he used the evergreen. And he used the evergreen because it doesn't wither. So the associations in the Bible with evergreens are actually not negative at all. And it may not surprise us then that people would use evergreens in their celebrations even as it relates to celebrating the Lord because Evergreens are a tremendous representation of that which does not wither. Not to mention it's a whole lot easier to decorate something with something that's not going to wither. Right? That's why our our flowers here don't wither. If we chose to use flowers that do wither for decoration, we'd be switching out our decorations an awful lot, right? Because flowers wither. 
But if we used ever, evergreens, we wouldn't have to as much because evergreens don't wither. They're great for decoration. One of the reasons why these decorations have been used in pagan practices, yes. Okay, so we've talked about Jesus. And as it relates to that part of the holiday, I see positive fruit, at least at this time in history. Maybe it'll be different in 50 years. Maybe, we, may, 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 maybe there can be no association in 50 years, but that's it's not today. As it talks about decorations, I've given you uh, some, some thoughts there, and then we look for the fruit. Now let's talk about the stuff that does bear negative fruit. The stuff that does bear negative fruit. First one being Santa Claus. Santa Claus is derived in part from a story of a Christian in the 4th century named Nicholas of Myra. Aside from the superstition that the Roman church has laid at his feet, all the miracles that he was supposed to have done, tradition says that he was a man that was tremendously generous. He was a man that did great things. He was a man that particularly saved three women from being, having to be sold into prostitution by slipping sacks of coins into their window in order that their father could pay the dowry for them to have a respectable marriage. This is a tradition that has followed Nicholas of Myra for some time by which we get the concept of Saint Nick, which has been repurposed in Western culture into Santa Claus. Of course, in other cultures, he was significantly more pagan. He had little demons that followed him around to do mischief and such. And um, there are significantly more pagan associations with Santa Claus in other cultures than what the Roman Catholic Church thought to drive. The reason why Nicholas was used in part was likely because uh, Nicholas was celebrated on his, his day as a saint. He was sainted by the Roman Catholic Church, and his day as a saint was in December 6th. So it was around that time of the holiday, goodwill, all of that stuff. When all of those things begin to make their way into the church, goodwill and, and, and peace on earth and all of these things, Nicholas was a nice, natural uh, um, accommodation to this idea of Saint Nick, and thus Santa Claus, because he was a generous guy. Uh, he was a bishop. Uh, in, in the Roman church in the, in the 300s as well. And so we have this man. However, this is one of those interesting times where as we look at history, instead of, we might say, the neg- as we've talked about with other parts of, Christi- uh, of Christmas, the negative fruits were old and it became something that, that wasn't as bad later. The negative fruits passed away. In this case, it's gotten much worse. Santa Claus has become something very dangerous theologically. And to that extent, I believe that, that we need to be careful with Santa Claus. The concept of Santa Claus is this. That there is a timeless, supernatural being that judges and rewards us according to our actions, right? That this being knows everything. He is everywhere. He's omnipresent thus. He's omniscient thus. He does not age thus. And he sure sounds an awful lot like God, doesn't he? And then this omniscient, omnipresent being who, who judges us will judge us by our good and by our ill. And if we are good, then he will give us all the things that we want in our lust. And, 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 and if, if, he, if we're bad, then he drops a lump of coal in our stocking. And this could not be further from the truth as it relates to God. Now, number one, as we relate that to God, you know what's really interesting about Santa? I don't know of anyone who's ever gotten a lump of coal except maybe in jest, right? They maybe, maybe get the lump of coal and then there's, and all the prisons are hidden somewhere. Have you ever known people that their parents are actually, you know, I'm, I'm going to give my child a lump of coal for Christmas. I, I, I've not known it. And that being said, what does that teach us about this being? I was somewhat good, but pretty bad throughout the year. And maybe at times, mom and dad say, lying to their children, Santa's watching. You might get a lump of coal. 
But it seems as though, see, at first that, that manipulation works. I don't want to get a lump of coal. But then after a few Christmases, they realize no one gets lumps of coal. Which means everyone gets rewarded, no matter how good or bad they are, because they try hard. And because Santa is good and jolly and whatnot. And then, of course, the lie collapses as they stop believing in Santa. But they impose it upon God. What does that teach? It teaches universalism. Does it not? Does it not teach a concept that says there is a good and there is a bad and you might be punished for the bad and rewarded for the good, but no one actually gets punished for the bad? Because no one gets the lump of coal. And then on top of that, God doesn't actually work that way. God, everyone, everyone gets a lump of coal in God's economy because we're all sinners, right? Everyone gets the lump of coal, but then Jesus bore our lump of coal on the cross. And so Jesus became the ultimate gift that gave us what we could not earn because we all deserve a lump of coal. So Santa thus becomes this, uh, the, the closest thing many people in society will come to understanding an omniscient, omnipresent being is Santa Claus, and he is a desperate perversion of the truth. If they link Santa in any way to, 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 to God, they will have an absolutely marred and terrible picture of who God is. And that could really throw some people off. Along with Santa, there's one more aspect of the holiday that we need to consider in this argument for fruit. And that being materialism. Obviously, the holiday as it relates to materialism no longer bears... Uh, the, the, the holiday with the focus that was supposed to be on giving ha has, has become deeply materialistic, right? I need to be careful with this point because giving is a good thing. The Bible calls us to give. Jesus is the ultimate gift, right? Around this season. Jesus did die on the cross, ascend into the deep, lead captivity captive, and give gifts unto men. But there's a big difference between giving and receiving. And there's a big difference between a spirit of celebration and a spirit of covetousness and lust and envy and greed. The spirit of giving bears the fruit of Christ. The spirit of lust and covetousness and envy and greed bears the fruit of darkness. So we find in our culture scores of families who come out of the holidays overweight and in debt and racked with stress. People take out loans. They buy gifts on layaway, racked huge credit card debts in order to make Christmas special. And in the name of giving, they're buying gifts. They're buying gifts for themselves. Everyone's getting gifts. They're getting what they want. And it bears the fruit of everything the Bible says to avoid. Crippling debt, lust, envy, covetousness, greed. And if not in me, at least in my children. The Christian battle against materialism, the drive to want stuff, the conviction that things are sufficient to make you happy, this is, this is evil, this is darkness. The things of this world can produce a temporary, fleeting contentment and happiness, but it very quickly devolves into discontentment, the itch to have something more, the itch to have something different. That fleshly feeling that drives people to always want the next best thing. The fleshly compulsion to cause women to fill their closets with clothes they'll never wear. The compulsion just to go buy something as a means of therapy. The compulsion to keep up with the Joneses. These all bear the fruit of carnality, of the flesh. Things offer a small burst of satisfaction, like eating a piece of candy, but it has no substance. The hunger comes back all too quickly. You've seen this in the child who says, Dad, if I can have this for Christmas, I'll never ask for anything again. And that does not last very long. Before they get discontent and they need something else, they want something else. 
You felt the same pull in your own heart. It's reflected in children, but it's also, I mean, grown-ups do it too. They just get more clever, right? Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a career. If only I can become this in my job, then I can slow down. Then I can stop working 80 hours a week. If only I make that amount of money, then I can stop making money. And then it's like you get the drive to keep going. You've got to get the next thing. You've got to hit the next benchmark. You've got to get to the next level. That's a temptation that's in all of our hearts. But with that said, this is a perversion of proper fruit. Where Acts chapter 20 verse 35 says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Where Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 says that the purpose of labor is that I may have to give to them that have need. Materialism is a perversion of something that is so good, which is giving. And again, be careful that you don't allow your aversion to materialism to strip from you the joy of giving and receiving. Be careful with that. Don't allow Satan's perversions to strip you from godly fruit, from godly things. We don't have to throw out the opportunity to show your children what it means to give just because you're afraid of the human desire to get. Yes, all children are going to struggle with the desire for stuff. Guide it, watch it, put up protections if you need to in some way, shape, or form. Receiving gifts ought to be humbling. We live in a culture that sees gifts as entitlements, handouts as entitlements. If I don't get something for Christmas, I've been slighted. Well, wait a minute. A gift is never an obligation. Every gift that comes to me ought to be a humbling experience for me, that someone saw fit to spend what was theirs to give something to you without, without return. A gift, by its very definition, asks for nothing in return. If, it, if you ask for something in return, it's not a gift, it's an exchange. It's a barter. And so as it is, gift receiving ought to become a humbling experience for us. Someone loves me. Someone gave something to me that is humbling. Not, well, I didn't get what he got. Why not? I didn't get enough. There's more presents under the tree for brother than me. That's the negative fruit, right? That's You're not entitled, children, to anything, any gift under that tree. You're not entitled to any gifts on your birthday. You, des you, 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 you don't deserve it. You're not entitled to it. But our society is an entitlement society, right? I'm entitled to other people's money. I'm entitled to other people's time. I'm entitled to other people's skills. Healthcare is a right. Have you consulted the doctors on that one? Because you're saying you have the right to their time, their skills, their education. Do you really have that right? Everything, though, in society is entitlement. And so it should not surprise us that entitlement has crept into gift giving. I, I deserve gifts. No, you don't. And if, if you do, then you've earned it, and it's not a gift, it's a payment. You've been paid. Your payment has been wrapped and put under the tree. But it's a payment. And if you've done nothing to earn it, then it's not a payment, which means you're not entitled to it, which means it's a gift, which should humble you. That somebody saw fit, loved you enough to give you a gift. And then you have the privilege of blessing others. So we have this concept of fruit. Santa bears negative fruit. Materialism bears negative fruit. 
But materialism is a perversion of positive fruit. Don't let that go. Jesus seems to bear pretty positive fruit in this season still. There will always be pagan concepts of, of, of holidays. That's always going to be there. Maybe it is that we, as I mentioned before, we don't need to fight for Merry Christmas quite as hard as we thought. Why do I need a bunch of pagans to say Merry Christmas to me? We can say it in the church among those who know what it means. Maybe that's enough. I'm not saying we shouldn't, we shouldn't fight to keep Jesus there because it's good that he's, in, it's good that he's around, right? But as we look at the fruit that is born, that is one of the major considerations that we ought to have doctrinally as to whether or not Christmas should end up in our homes. Easter should end up in our homes. Lent should end up in our homes. These things should end up in our homes. Now again, I'm not advocating for or against per se. You know where I stand. Obviously our church celebrates it to some degree. I've told you we celebrate it to some degree. I've come to peace on these things myself, so I'm bearing out a bit of that fruit. But at the end of the day, it is your decision. And I'm trying to give you enough thoughts to make that decision properly. One more point. I'm going to skip a little bit here, but we have one more point, and then we'll be done. The argument of Christian liberty. Unfortunately, we don't have time today to get into this topic in full. We've talked about it in some other contexts. In the early church, there was controversy, particularly surrounding the eating of meat that was offered to idols. We've talked about that already. Some, but there was an even deeper controversy, even about whether or not to eat meat at all. We read about this controversy in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. The Bible says this, Him that is weak in faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that they may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. Let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, uh, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If something bears negative, satanic, obvious fruit, you help your brother, you tell your brother. If something bears significantly more tenuous fruit, and I would include in this personally historical relevance, if the entire reason why you are basing your concerns about Christmas is based upon things that have happened in the past, hundreds of years ago, pagan associations that may or may not exist anymore, it, I, I don't know of anyone outside of Christians who, who believe this who would be driving around a neighborhood, see lights on your house, and believe that you are compromising. Or see garland on your door and say, that person's walk with the Lord is suspect. I don't know of any pagan out among these walls that if I told them Merry Christmas would say, is that person really a Christian? 
because there is no negative association in, in that sense. Can we, can we talk about those negative associations as it relates to Santa Claus? We can. As it relates to materialism, absolutely. Are those things that can cause problems doctrinally? But are you going to, 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 to have anybody in society that is going to, is there going to be a marring of your testimony before God or man by these associations? I, I would, I would, I have trouble thinking of some. Perhaps you can help me on that. If, 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 if you can think toward that end. Other than the, the Christians who have studied this all out and who might then be imposing what they know upon people who know far less than them. So Paul says here, don't let the one who eats despise the one who won't. Don't let the one who won't eat judge the one that does. You want to just eat vegetables because that's what they did before Noah's day? Fine. But don't judge those that eat the meat because God has said you can. You, 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 you eat the meat? Well, don't look at those that don't and despise them, those people that won't eat meat, because they don't have to. It's okay. So as we make our assessments about the bearing of fruit, figure out what fruit it bears. Figure out if it, if it does, does it breach the separation principles? Does it breach the fruit principles? If it does, then by God's grace, stay away from it and help others understand the same. If it doesn't, then, then you have a conscience decision to make. Am I uncomfortable with this? Is it right? Is it wrong? And then make a decision. But as Paul continued to teach on this, as the principle breaks down into these Christian liberty issues, and I'm not saying everything about Christmas is a Christian liberty issue, but some things are. The ones that aren't, we take a stand. The ones that are, we need to let stay there. And Paul would then say this in verses 20 through to 12 through 22. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. You will stand before God. You will answer for yourself. You'll answer for your family. So do what you think is right. Don't live in guilt. Do what you think is right. Take the word of God, apply it to your life, and then do what you think is right. Don't despise or judge those that don't think the way you do. If I cannot go to chapter and verse and say this is explicitly sin, then I need to be careful telling people that it is explicitly sin. If I cannot draw it directly from a principle, then I need to be careful to make sure that I'm not stepping into an area of Christian liberty and judging or despising. Verse 20, For meat destroy not the work of God. All things are indeed, indeed are pure. But it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or made weak. That's a good thing, because that breaches a principle of Scripture. If in my Christian liberty I cause a brother to stumble, my Christian liberty has just become sin to me and to him. So as I'm assessing Christian liberty, if, if you determine that, you're, that, that, that Christmas falls within it, or to the degree that Christmas and Easter and Lent and these things fall into it, the next assessment is, will I cause a brother to stumble by doing it in front of them? At which point, there might need to be a reassessment. Here it is, verse 22. Hast thou faith? Do you believe that something is okay? That others don't believe is okay? And you can't find chapter and verse and your conscience is not convicted before God? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he, which he alloweth. You're a very blessed person if you can live within your Christian liberties 
and not live under guilt or condemnation because other people don't agree with you on those Christian liberties. That's okay. Again, Christian liberty does not breach into chapter and verse. I, if I can go to chapter and verse and tell you the Bible says this is wrong, then we're not in a Christian liberty issue. If I can bring out tremendously strong principles and, 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 and um, uh, scriptural concepts, then we're probably not in Christian liberty territory. But when we're talking about gauging history, gauging cultures, gauging these things, I think we're probably pretty strongly in Christian liberty territory. And we need to be careful about that. One more passage as we close. I'm just going to read it and make a brief comment. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 to 22. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect to an holy day, a holiday, or in the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you in your reward and a voluntary humility and a worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by the flesh of his mind and not holding the head, notice the capital H there, that's Jesus, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Very similar to what Paul said in Romans when he said, if a man regards a day, he regard, as long as he regards it as unto the Lord, it's fine. If a man does not regard the day, as long as he doesn't regard it as unto the Lord, it's fine because these are the rudiments of the world. The days, the holidays, these things are going to burn up. The evergreens are going to burn up. These things are going to burn up. If you can, in good conscience, celebrate this holiday, put a tree up in your house, put things on it that are not evil. If you put, the, and, and if you put things up that are evil, obviously it's evil, right? But if you put things up that are not evil, if you are celebrating this holiday by coming to church, singing about Jesus coming into the world, and praising the Lord for the Word of God made flesh then you are celebrating this holiday as unto the Lord. Romans says that's okay. We have been delivered by God from the rudiments of this world, but if we're holding the head without compromise, that's okay. Now that being said, if you cannot do it in good conscience, don't. If Christmas becomes a problem to you, stop it. Don't do it. That's okay. You're free to do that. And the church will not despise you for that because we're commanded not to.
all of this is temporary. It will perish with the using. And to that end, this is the point. Are there problems with the holiday? Yes. Would it be better if Christmas was celebrated on June 3rd than December 25th? Probably. December 25th has some pretty bad connotations. Would it be better if Santa Claus was not a thing? It would. To muddy people's understanding of, of God. Would it be better? Would it be better if we did not devolve this holiday into gross materialism, debt, overeating, intemperance, and such? Better, yes. Was there a time when it was much worse than this? Yes. Was the holiday purified? Yes. Are we in a, a unique time in history where we are beginning to see the transition back to the depths of paganism that we have not seen since the time of the purification of it in the 1800s? Yes. For today, can you celebrate it? I've given you my opinion on that. But that opinion might have to change in five years. It may be. That culture drifting the way it is, in five years, we will have to have nothing to do with this. And we might, as the Puritans did at one point, have to say, look, in the church, this holiday does not find its way in. But for today, at least as far as Legacy Baptist Church is concerned, I don't see that because I still see satanic people begging the government to remove uh, um, nativity scenes. I still see the, the darkness of this world recoiling in horror at elements of the Christian uh, parts of Christmas. People begging to get those hymns off of the radio that talk about Jesus. Schools trying to get these, these hymns that talk about Jesus taken out of, out of their school plays, their Christmas plays, and their Christmas choirs. And as long as there's still something that the darkness of the world is recoiling against, I'd say that there might still be something in it that's worthy of us appreciating. As with everything, you are free to disagree with me. I would encourage you to allow what has been said today to just help you think through things. Come to your own conclusions. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take my history for it. You don't have to take my application of the scriptures. If you disagree with me, it won't, probably isn't the first time and it won't be the last. And that's okay. But... I've tried to give you today a fairly comprehensive uh, attempt to help you think through these things from a doctrinal, historical, and rational perspective. And may God take this and use it in your lives to benefit you so that in, in the holidays to come, and, and by God's grace, this one as well, there does not have to be that thing in the back of your mind that says, am I okay here? That you can that, that to whatever degree you choose or not or choose not to celebrate this holiday, that you can do it in joy as unto the Lord, for His glory, to help our children understand something miraculous and marvelous that happened two thousand years ago. That we might have a memorial here that honors the Lord. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.